Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. There's no question the Bloom family are part of the horticultural giants of the gardening world, pioneering in the popularising of so many plants, perennials, alpines, conifers, heathers, and grasses. Innovators in plant breeding think cosmos, lucifer, achillea, moonshine, and potentilla red ace, to name just a few, as well as developing inspiring ways of displaying garden plants. Blooms not only produce commercially grown quality plants for the home gardener, but they've also created world-leading showcase garden designs and plant associations at Bressingham Gardens. So Adrian, welcome to Dig It. We're absolutely delighted that you could join us today. And I suspect we do find you in your garden in Dis in Norfolk? <laughs> yes, you do. At, uh, my own garden is called Foggy Bottom. More on that later, but uh, overall it's Bressingham Gardens. And there's 17 acres of uh, gardens here for people to visit, which um, is uh, probably seven or 8,000 different varieties of plants. So there's plenty to keep people here for a while. Indeed. Most yeah. of the day, anyway. <laughs> that sounds a lot of work. I mm. mean, is it? Uh, I, I take it you're not doing that all by yourself? <laughs> no, you could say that. Uh, we, you know, people say, well, um, um, how many gardens have you got? And the obvious answer is not enough. <laughs> and, um, generally, speak, generally speaking, that's the case. Yeah, we have about sort of uh, five full-time gardeners for 17 acres, which is uh, a little bit stretching it, particularly since uh, we have uh, intensive planting and therefore have to keep uh, the weeds down as well as maintain the edges and the borders and the labels and everything else. But uh, we do manage it with some good volunteers, not many volunteers, but good ones. So um, who knows about the future? It gets more difficult. Yes, indeed. Um, so, I mean, yeah, where, where do we start, Adrian, with, with, with our chat? Because obviously you've got, we're going to be talking about your new um, book, uh, Foggy Bottom, a garden to share a little bit later. But perhaps can we start by chatting a little bit about the history of the Bressingham Gardens and Nursery and the three generations of the Blooms family? Yeah, certainly. Uh, it does go back a bit. In fact, mm. uh, in 2026, we have our 100th anniversary of the company my father began. Um, but he wasn't the first one. In fact, my grandfather sort of started uh, encouraging his uh, son, uh, Alan, to um, to get into uh, horticulture, but he didn't need much encouraging. But he knew from the age of about 13 that he wanted to go in for hardy perennials. So... Uh, that mm. took a lot of um, time out of the equation because if you know early enough what you want to do, you get an early start. Um, and this was in Oakington in Cambridge. And uh, he developed a nursery there, um, not far from where he'd been born, which is called Over, um, and uh, built the nursery up before the Second World War to about 30 acres, I think, of open ground perennials primarily. Um, and it was one of the bigger ones in the country at that stage. But, of course, he had to close everything down during the war um, mm-hmm. and um, and then started up again afterwards. Uh, but uh, I think he was looking to move the nursery and uh, came to Brassingham. So 1946, uh, the hardest winter for many years, 46-7, mm-hmm. he came to uh, Brassingham mm-hmm. and uh, brought his family with him, which was, of course, my brother, myself and sister, and uh, so it was um, 
you know, it was a bit of a pioneering job. And I think one of the things that attracted him, because he's in the middle of uh, the war, he'd cleared Wiccan Fen, which most people know of or might have heard of. Um, and he wanted to carry on doing a bit of clearing. And this uh, Bressingham offered him that uh, to do, actually, down the, the lower land, which uh, got flooded every winter. Uh, he told me later, which was very helpful when we'd really got into the nursery business, that if he'd known what it was like, he wouldn't have uh, set up a nursery here. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Hindsight's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. And, uh, of course, I knew that some, to some extent because um, we were on, you know, quite difficult, uh, different land, and it was not consistent. Um, and so I guess that if you were really to choose a nursery where you wanted to use implements on and tractors and this sort of stuff you'd use a light loam but uh, in, in places it was quite heavy mm, that's amazing because i hadn't realized i mean my grandfather's nursery byron hill nursery had a similar fate where it had shut down during the second world war and then that's when they closed the nursery and moved it up to here at buckingham so similar so very similar, similar. Yeah. and uh, yes I, uh, I know what you mean sort of it, it's hindsight is a wonderful thing and our current site is an 11 acre garden center and again it's got issues with the soil <laughs> here we have really heavy clay, buckinghamshire clay and uh, <laughs> it makes for uh, sort of digging the mail orders and bare root hedging in quite hard work shall we say a bit, sometimes bit at times isn't it <laughs> uh, yeah I, I can imagine i can imagine I've been past your place a few times over the years. <laughs> I used to come uh, that way to go to Pershaw. Mm. Um, I think you weren't too far away from there, or at least you were on the on the route. Yeah, no, no, yes, we're on the route. Um, yeah, uh, that was a friend of mine from uh, your neck of the woods used to give me a lift as he mm. used to <laughs> drive literally again past the door when I went to Pershaw That's College. Cool. So, wow. <laughs> <laughs> fun, but... you went to Pershaw, did you? Yes, many many you years ago. Yeah, it was a great college. Yeah, well, my 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 son uh, Jason did the same. So, whether you were of a similar age, I'm not quite sure. But uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> so um, go back back to the story in a way in relation to here. Uh, certainly, um, it depends what you're doing as regards a nursery. If you have a nursery, of course, you know they developed into container areas and uh, standing grounds rather than. A, growing in the soil, but if you're growing trees or certain shrubs and this sort of thing, or, or as you do, laying them in, then sticky, heavy soil is not ideal, is it? No, um, definitely not. But, um, but compost helps. Every <laughs> year we dig in compost, and I'm sure in uh, sort of in Cambridgeshire as well, you, uh, are you digging in gravel to improve the drainage, or <laughs> what's your...? Well, uh, we, we, we largely, much of that nursery has uh, disappeared as such. We don't grow any in the open ground anymore. Um, everything's in containers. And the nursery is much smaller, too, because we went through a lot of changes in the late 80s. 90s and sort of thing finally selling the business uh prime most of the business anyway um in 1997 right. but um yeah we still have a, a nursery a smaller nursery which my son manages and runs um uh, and that's the blooms nurseries limited it gets a bit confusing you know you can see people's eyes glaze over when you start to tell them <laughs> the uh the sort of intimate story <laughs> but uh, i won't i won't bore you with all that but um yeah so 
anyway, our Bressingham was uh, was a, a country farm uh, with rather a nice hall uh, to it, and not much in the way of garden. But uh, my father obviously wanted to popularise perennials, and uh, eventually he started in 1953 to create some island beds in front of the Bressingham Hall, um, eventually ending up with about six acres and uh, over 4,000 different varieties of plants, which he collected from all over the country and also Europe. So it was quite a collection of perennials. Um, at a time when perennials were not particularly popular, it was mostly ground cover plants and shrubs and that sort of thing. Um, but... Um, the garden centres uh, had not got used to uh, growing plants in containers or selling plants in containers. It was up to the grower mm. to do that. And I remember my father saying, well, more or less over his dead body, would he get perennials to grow in, plant, in pots? Um, but that was really where I was heading because uh, obviously uh, next generation uh, garden centres were spreading across the country. Suburbia was wanting to go out and visit the garden centres and uh, the early days of garden centres was all about gardens and all about plants and uh, supporting things, as yeah. you probably remember. Yeah, <laughs> certainly yeah. changed a bit now, yeah, hasn't it, yeah. compared to the yeah, new days. Has. Yeah. So, 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 Adrian, your father, Alan Bloom, of course, was a, an amazing nurseryman, but were, were you destined to, to follow in his footsteps uh, those years ago? No, no, I don't think destined. I knew he would like uh, my brother or I to go into the business, mm -hmm. but uh, I actually um, was looking further afield, and I was thinking of going to university at one point at 18, but um, uh, I don't think I, I needed some support for that. I think at the time, but I decided to go to America, and I went over there at age 18 uh, by boat, of course, in those days. Um, and I spent nearly two years over there working on a nursery, two springs, but I did all sorts of other jobs, um, uh, including uh, working at a ski resort and working at the Winter Olympics, because okay. I was also into speed skating, oh, which wow. uh, came from the pens, of course, as well. Yeah, because you've got a great tradition over there, haven't you, where when it ices over, there's a few places that sort of, I'm going to say fields that get flooded that you then go skating on, don't you? Yes, that used to be the case. And uh, I know we, we used to, they, they used to be in the fens closer to Cambridge. Uh, and eventually then the Lincolnshire people got involved and you had to go all the way up um, to uh, beyond Spalding, um in Lincolnshire there were some fairly open places. And I remember in one of the championships uh, skating in uh, a place called Tongue End, and it was uh, the end of the world as far as I was concerned. There was a, <laughs> a cold, icy wind from Siberia with nothing to stop it. <laughs> so um, anyway, that was, uh, that was the reason I ended up in California at the Winter Olympics. Gosh, and it had an effect on future... Uh, future of the business but um, I spent nearly two years there and uh, I think I ended up uh, trying to sell encyclopedias in San Francisco and uh, that was the point at which I decided perhaps it was worth a go uh, to work on in, in, in the horticultural field so I came back and then went to uh, Denmark for six months and uh, also to Switzerland to work and um, so I, I got the sort of basis and grounding of it but wanting something to add to our business I came back in 62 same time as my brother 
who came back to manage a farm and um, I came back into the propagation side of the business um, and began a new career. Okay. So, yeah, I was going to say we, we, we were sort of talking about, you know, returning, but you're, uh, you mentioned, you touched on those wonderful island beds, which uh, uh, Alan Bloom is obviously so famous for. The whole like, development of perennials and, and breeding, um, was that sort of happening at the time as, as your return, or, or does, does that take us back or more forward in, in, in history? Yeah, I think uh, I think he experimented and wrote books, and uh, he appeared on television with Percy Throw and that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, once or twice, up to '62, I think. And we came back, and we gradually started um, getting into containers. And of course, I was interested to add something to the business, and I thought at the time maybe conifers and heathers might work, um, and got interested in them. He said, "Well, that's okay." I don't mind you diversifying as long as you only grow about 25 conifers. Well, you know, he was a collector. I ended up a collector as well. <laughs> I had a lot more than that. But um, the perennial sort of side of it really did did become popular, but it was probably a bit later. I mean, he was, he was well ahead of his time at that mm. time. Um, but um, and people came to the garden, I think, and it was quite different. Uh, way of setting out the garden with the island beds as opposed to, you know, the way of growing perennials, which you see in some of the more traditional gardens with a one-sided border or a fence or a hedge against it. Indeed. And also stuffing it with uh, annuals and dahlias and things like that later in the season. Yeah, as I'm saying, Adrian, on our table, just as we're doing the podcast, we've got a, um, one of the books, uh, Perennials for, for Your Garden by uh, Alan Bloom. And obviously there's a wonderful photograph of, of one of those, well, a number of those island beds. And certainly, dynamically, they, look, they change the whole look of a, a garden space, don't they? Yes, uh, they did. And I mean, the big advantage of them eventually, of course, and still today, perennials are very popular. In fact, um, I would sort of... Uh, make a case for people planting more shrubs but of course shrubs and trees do tend to keep growing mm-hmm. and you can't prune them back at the end of the year with grasses and perennials of course you can so um, I think they are an ideal fit for most gardens today um, and there's such a wide range and variety of perennials that um, they fit almost any garden uh, but um, so I think he was he was onto something then and of course the nursery was primarily growing perennials but we had to get them into pots and eventually sold some through the uh, the garden center outlets which was still one of the main uh, growing outlets but they also of course wanted conifers and heathers which uh, gave a year-round uh, appeal and looked pretty good in containers so uh, we we offered all those three items particularly um, and, um, and developed and we started showing in Chelsea Flower Show around the 1966, I think, and mm-hmm. we carried on till about the year 2000. Uh, every year we're going up to Chelsea and showing mm-hmm. things off. And initially it was just perennials. Then when I got involved, I we had two stands, one of them was conifers uh, primarily, and um, the rest was perennials. But eventually we had one exhibit, and then I started to assimilate perennials and grasses in amongst the more shrubby material. It's interesting, Adrian. Like I say, Adrian, we're, we're talking about the, you know the growing plants 
side of the business is, is obviously part of its ethos. But I remember back in the, the early 80s at uh, the Garden Centre, I used to work up a bit up in Manchester. We used to take your plants, um, the conifers, heathers, and they were our, you know, our big sellers because, of course, the soil in that part of the world is very quite acidic. Um, and they used yeah. to out, outsell shrubs and even roses uh, at some points of the, you know, the, the growing season. And we created a, a wonderful conifer and heather garden, which um, was maintained right through to, for, for, for a number of years and looked amazing always caused a lot of interest with uh, with customers especially if you could do a model garden within a within a garden center so um yes well yeah. that that, uh, that that's good to hear and um they really <laughs> they really did become very popular for a time and we had a job to keep up with mm. demand but i think because we put out stock plants we were able to produce quite a few and we were ahead of the game in a way on that so mm-hmm. that was quite helpful to be able to do that and uh, promoted them of course um so perennials were always very much of the mix and of course new varieties and cultivars that my father raised with uh, his assistant percy piper um and um it was a pretty good mix and uh, i guess that we sort of grew on the back of the garden center development um through that period and got to the point where i think we were we were doing over two or three million plants a year, mostly in containers at that time in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and, of course, conifers came to the point where you could still sell them if you potted them on because they, they got bigger, but eventually that that did end. Of course. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was difficult, really. There's a lot of uh, examples of... Uh, conifers unfortunately which have spoiled gardens and that's partly why they got their bad reputation but it was also compressors of Paris Landi or just Landi that people will mm. think about mm. um, yeah, fast growing plant that's it. became uh, a bit of a scourge you mentioned earlier you you started off with conifers and your father sort of restricting you to 25 varieties. What spawned your first love of conifers and why did you sort of take them as a plant to start collecting? Well, uh, I suppose initially um, I had worked in Switzerland and I really didn't know very much about them, but they did, they did grow a range of dwarf slow-growing conifers. And uh, I had asked my father to collect a few varieties uh, for stock purposes um, and uh, going into the propagation side. So really it was something my father didn't know anything about, so it was partly that, partly the fact that um, when you started to look uh, more into that area of plants, there's so many different types uh, from the ground-covering types to the really dwarf ones to the bigger one so there was a variety among them and it didn't seem that many people really knew much about conifers so they were certainly popular even at those at that time but not as popular as hopefully we we're able to make them but um i think they hadn't been used much with heathers and um i tend to say that and i think it's probably true that no idea is truly original and i saw a garden down in the outskirts of london in surrey which um used uh, some conifers and shrubs as well as heathers and it, it uh, i thought that was a pretty good combination so i based the development of gardens here on the use of those two to give year-round color and uh, obviously promoted it fairly heavily 
Mm. Um, and um, took it. I took. Uh, I did a, a small book on it called A Year Round Garden. Um, and we'd given away a free garden to somebody in Dis, and their name I found out afterwards uh, was Mr. and Mrs. Edens. So it was called the Garden of Eden, which was <laughs> rather fortuitous. It was excellent. Brilliant. One, one, would, one might have made, thought that um, I could claim being clever, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's great but uh, we took this up to um, Chelsea Flower Show, and of course the problem with uh, having heathers um, there is that the one month in the year when the winter flowering ones have more or less finished and uh, the summer ones have not begun is May. Mm-hmm. So there was nothing in flower, but uh, it did give the impression of what it what it looked like. And um, I, uh, that was uh, that was the same year when uh, we took um, a model of the house, at least the end of the house down. And uh, we had a carpenter come with us, but uh, apparently it was all unionized in those days. And we had threats from all of the uh, the people who were working on site to close the site immediately if uh, if we use, carried on using our carpenter. Oh, so I had to go across to Brixton or somewhere like that to make him a member of uh, the union. <laughs> oh, my word. Different times, different times. Different times, Adrian, can we just ask a little bit about the uh, the Bressingham Garden Nursery? Then um, you sort of touched on it a little bit earlier. Are you still sort of growing traditionally by um, using your own stock beds, and uh, do you still propagate from uh, seed cuttings? Well, we, mm-hmm. we yeah, primarily um, a lot of the stock comes from um, the um, the gardens. Of course, the more unusual stuff. We don't have stock beds in the open ground anymore. I think my son has found it easier to probably divide plants up from stock that he grows in containers. So he retains a bit of stock and most of it, most of it is done that way. But obviously if there's anything from tissue and so on, he will probably get them in or if there's anything protected from somebody else mm-hmm. um, in order to keep up with some of the new varieties. But uh, uh, by and large, um, it's, it's a wide range he grows. And uh, of course we, have continued to um, breed and select varieties, so quite a lot of new stuff coming on, uh, which tend we don't have the big market that we used to, so we either use somebody, if it looks like it's going to be a big uh, selling plant, we'd go through an agent, mm-hmm. um, same as any other breeder, I suppose. Um, but um, if it's uh, a small plant, we think it's a good one, and not going to be a great seller for one reason or another, we put it out through our Bressingham Gardens catalogue. Um, your hands-on approach uh, throughout the history of Bressingham has meant that you've seen huge changes over the years, Adrian. Um, did you ever have a sort of blueprint master plan, or did your garden designs <laughs> simply evolve? No, I didn't really. Um, <laughs> uh, I'd like to think that uh, probably I did, but... Um, um, I think that um, what I initially looked at was uh, I had uh, created a small conifer and heather garden near my father's garden. And then in 1966, um, I got married and uh, we put up a house in the middle of a meadow. And that's partly what the new book is about, is from 66 through to the present day, um, and uh, built a garden. But um, So it was initially around the house. 
and uh, was to try out uh, different plants and different conifers and various things that I got. But I was soon looking into the meadow beyond uh, to take in the next uh, five acres, uh, which I did over the next uh, two or three years. So by 19, I guess it was by about 1976, that very dry year, mm -hmm. that um, I more or less started to fill up the meadow with uh, conifers and other plants, heathers and so on. Uh, I was collecting and um, there was never any real plan. The main thing was to uh, keep broad pathways um, mm -hmm. because I had seen collections where it ended up looking like a woodland because conifers don't tend to <laughs> stay small no, forever. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, yeah. yeah, briefly, I'm back on, on the, the conifer and heather garden phenomenon. Um, in a way, that they have sort of rewritten sort of garden history and how we, we, we perceive them. Do you think that combination is due for a, a comeback? I mean, we know about gardening. We go around in, in successions, things revolve. Uh, we've got a massive resurgence in houseplants now. Do you think the conifer and heather, yeah. could that come back in the next decade or so? I don't think, I don't think it will as such. Um, I, but uh, in a way, of course, uh, that's interesting because I, I have started to plant up an area of the garden which was called a secret garden for many years. Nobody went in it, mainly because there were no plants there. It was sort of somewhat hidden. And uh, I've opened that up and uh, I've just been planting a few heathers to give winter color. Um, although there are some still left from the original plantings done in back in the 60s and 70s. But um, I think that take, they take a lot of beating, some of the the winter flowering heathers in particular. Of course, most people can grow those even if the pH is a bit on the uh, alkaline side, but uh, not the calunas, the summer flowering ones, all like an acid soil or a neutral and acid soil. But um, I think uh, what I'm planting up with them is a few other plants, a few shrubs uh, with different colored foliage, um, pampas grass I'm using, but also some other grasses like the millennials and things like that. Mm -hmm. And actually that uh, combination, I think grasses work very well with some of the heathers and um, and, and a few conifers in, the, in there as well. Um, there's so many conifers, of course, available today, but uh, unfortunately... You know, there's not anybody really doing anything with any knowledge of growing them and introducing them, and that includes retail nurseries. Uh, unfortunately, they've not been popular enough to to have people continue to do grafting and things like that. Um, so there is an interest, but I, I don't see it coming back uh, as widely as possible. People have smaller gardens. Um, some of the plants can be grown in containers, but uh, conifers in particular, but they need to be watered and that sort of thing. Uh, but they can give you year-round color as well. So um, I think the the opportunity is there, but I don't think it's going to happen. Okay. And the Garden of Foggy Bottom, I, I was looking at your website and uh, – drone shots that you've taken and I mean, it's just inspirational the the way you've planted it the way the sort of views come across to to us uh, just sort of through that tiny little video clip it's amazing the what you've created there where did you get the inspiration from are there any gardens that you've been to that you've seen things and thought wow that's a good idea i'll use a bit of that or is it all I mean, yeah, 
Well, that's, uh, I mean, people these days say, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I will, I will uh, credit you with that, certainly. But, uh, yeah, I think the answer to that is I probably picked up different things from different places, but uh, I've been in a situation of living in the midst of it, so I do have a fair bit of time uh, to look at things um, and look at the vistas and ways that they can be improved, uh, looking for some year-round interest, looking for the wow factor, and various things, combinations and things like that. Um, and uh, so it's largely self-developed, uh, but um, I do try to make the garden a memorable visit, and we, we do get um, a lot of people complimenting it. Um, of course, uh, it, it, you know, it's, the trees are now, even the dwarf conifers has got quite large, so I have to thin them out. And I think creating enough space around things does mean that you've really got to decide on what you keep and what you get rid of. You know, initially it was planting everything up and uh, blocking off the views, uh, so you had to walk around a bed and get another vista in another direction. Now things are big enough, you can uh, limb up the canopy take the lower branches off and uh, then um, have a glimpse through to the next bed and, and plants in the next bed. So it's a different concept in a way. But, um, yeah, it's been fascinating to do, and uh, I'm still very much enthused and involved with it. Um, um, we could do with a few more people because uh, <laughs> each section of the garden that um, – you know, um, one's redoing. You know, I can see things that one's redoing, and uh, we we get to some of them, but we can't get to them all. Uh, that's the way it'll go, I think. But isn't that the joy of gardens? I mean, especially one like yours, which has been going for so long that you get to change it and think, well, yeah, that's looking a bit big now. Let's pull that one out and put something else in there and see what that does. I, I think that's one of the greatest things well, about established gardens. No, that's very true. I mean, I think, um, you know, people, um, of course, these days, uh, and, um, you know, the gardens are smaller, suburban gardens are smaller. They're not able to have the diversity that we have, and uh, that's another opportunity, if you like, to create. And, and what the book is about, too, is is um, looking more closely at plants and gardens. And I, when I say Foggy Bottom and Gardener Share, I do want people to share it, and I want them to understand, if you like, what the garden's all about and the plants and various things at different seasons. Um, and uh, through taking the photographs and also doing the captions, of course, you know, I'm able to talk about uh, aspects that perhaps many people don't do because they don't do both things and they may not be their garden. You know, if you're writing more uh, on, on, say, garden design or something like that, you'll use a lot of different gardens. You might use some of the, the ones you, of your own, but um, it's a very broad subject. Uh, I uh, include garden design in one of my interests, um, but... Um, you know, it's therefore, and somebody said, I think the recent visitors said, you know, it's quite different to other gardens. It is, uh, it is something that you've got a bit of an element of uh, many gardens in them, but as a whole, it's quite a different thing mm. uh, to um, to many of the gardens that you get, which are based on um, a garden design 
factor, which of course has to be done for different factors and, and has to be done largely for people who are not necessarily interested in plants. That's very true, yes. Um, and that's a good, obviously, stepping stone into into being immersed into, into horticulture. Um, Adrian, what? how did this part of the garden get its name, Foggy Bottom? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we have got a sign uh, near the gate uh, that uh, we put up because we got asked so many times um, about something. And they, firstly, it was where did the name come from? And secondly, we put some uh, canes with sticks and little bags on them which have soap in them. And people kept asking, what are these bags for? You know, and uh, I said, well, they've got soap in it to help keep, keep the garden clean. But um, <laughs> they don't seem to believe in that one. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's to keep the deer away, of course. Of course yes. And then they say, well, what sort of soap do you need? <laughs> And uh, any 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 foul smelling soap. Um, most of them aren't foul smelling, but no. Um, so um, yeah, Foggy Bottom came from the United States. Um, I was working on this small nursery in Maryland, and we used to deliver mostly at night time around to these garden centres, which were all individually owned. And this, well, they weren't garden centres in those days; they were small retail nurseries and. We used to visit somebody in Washington, D.C., just outside of it, a place called Foggy Bottom. And that sort of stuck in my mind. Um, so when we came to put our house up, it did get misty and foggy down here. I thought, that's a great name. I'll use that. So we used that. And, uh, of course, it's got a nice linkage. So probably if you went on uh, Google and Google for Foggy Bottom, you'd come up with this place in Washington, D.C., and uh, I have to be careful these days, but I used to sort of um, used to say if I give a lecture in America, it was where there was a lot of hot air coming up. It was where the <laughs> Pentagon was. <laughs> Pentagon was, um, and uh, a lot of the government officers were there too. So um, I have to be careful these days. Brilliant. But um, anyway, it it's. It's a good name, it's great and, name, and it fits very well. And it might well. We're hoping to release this book uh, next year in the US, so um, we'll have that connection hopefully. <laughs> good stuff. And you're talking about sort of how the gardens evolved and the ornamental grasses that sort of now feature a lot in the beds compared to sort of maybe some of the bigger conifers. And do you see that the sort of grasses and I can remember there's an image of a smoke bush, and that they they capture the, the elements of the weather so well. So I mean, when you've got sunlight coming through, is that a source of inspiration for you? The way that sort of the elements interact with the plants. Well, without a doubt, yes. I I think it's a very important aspect, and uh, I think. Um, some of the grasses really do show that up. I mean, the front cover of the book uh, shows uh, Stipa tenuissima, which is a, a grass from Texas, but um, it looks like clouds. Uh, really, it's, this is a case of having the dew on the, the small sort of uh, parts of the flowering or inflorescence and uh, early in the morning on, on July morning. But, um, of course, uh, light is so important in the garden and... Uh, in the wintertime when the light is low, you want um, to have the light coming through grasses, and that's where some of the miscanthus 
are very good. Um, if they've got uh, particularly attractive heads and if they stand up fairly well, because some of them are scans that tend to flop a bit. So again, it's selecting the best varieties, but uh, when you see the effect of the sun and the frost on things, uh, and again, uh, this is brought out a bit in the book, which goes through the year with different things. Um, and of course, I, taking a camera around makes you focus on some of those things which you might have missed uh, then if you if you didn't go around with the camera. Uh, you look for the small things as well as the larger vistas. But yeah, it's very important. Mm, I must say, the photography in the book is amazing. Fantastic, it, it, it? it yeah. really captures the light yeah, perfectly. Yeah. You, you, it, you are drawn into your garden, and that's that's the secret of a good photographer, I suppose, to to get capture the elements and the uh, the depth and dimension, isn't it, of a, of a garden space? Well, uh, I don't class myself as a photographer as such in a way, although I'm very pleased that they've come out as, as such. But uh, my son uh, Richard is a uh, professional garden photographer and uh, if I get into problems about the camera equipment or anything like that I have him to lean on but uh, and he does take photographs but I thought this book was one that I would uh, I had enough uh, in the way of images uh, going back to transparencies um, from the early days to digital uh, material now and um, yeah I think through that I mean I think there's a lot to be said for recording it because you know, you can you can be there on the day and you can sort of see something. And if you don't record it or haven't got it, and hopefully you've got it in a good photograph, it brings everything back to you. You you really realise it. Probably better. I mean, that particular shot on the front cover uh, hasn't been as good since um, because we had floods uh, a couple of years later, and some of the grass has dried off. It's going to take me three or four years to get back to that same picture, but it'll never be quite the same because you put other things in. And and so, you know, it's very important, I think, to, to catch the moment. Um, uh, and uh, the garden does change. Mm. Most definitely, yeah, it's ever-evolving. Um, Adrian, what's been sort of the driving force then over the garden over the last sort of six decades of, of Foggy Bottom? Is there a, Has the driving force just been the evolution of, of your planting or of the, 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 the categories of plants you've used? Is there any particular one thing or is it a combination of factors probably a combination i I suppose really uh of course uh when i was developing my own foggy bottom garden and my father was uh still doing his he's had the dell garden with uh, the six acres has been looked after very well for 35 years by um his uh, son-in-law married to my half sister and um he's done a really good job jamie blake um, and um, you have to have the attention to detail in order to keep it up to date, not only from a point of view of uh, obviously keeping it, maintaining it uh, as it is, but um, splitting plants and replanting and all this sort of thing, which has to be done. Um, labeling, uh, making sure it's true to name that if something looks like it's dying out, then you have to replace it and all this sort of stuff. Um, but um, a tremendous range there, and I think um, it really shows up late in the year when people don't expect perennials to be at their peak. Most people tend to think of gardens being at their peak in July and August, but or, or even July, June, July. But um, there's a, a lot of perennials, and uh, particularly grasses, that are good later. I think also people don't really 
appreciate they haven't got room for the shrubs and some of the shrubs that have been put out in recent years some that have come from america some of the corners and uh, and uh, well rhodos of course have been around for a number of years but many other viburnums and things like that make a splash uh, but uh, most gardens don't have room for those but we have got room for those in foggy bottom and have used them in conjunction with trees as well and of course as as the trees and conifers have grown, um, the tallest ones probably, um, well, about 60 or 70 feet high, um, your eyes tend to go up a bit more than they used to. Um, and I should mention, I suppose, that when I was in Squaw Valley, age 20, back in 1960, the Winter Olympics, I bought a packet of seed um there and send it back uh, of the giant redwoods, Sequoia and Gigantium. And um, those seeds were sown. Uh, and when I was back in 64, um, I planted them up and they're now well over 100 feet you know, oh. high, which is quite, um, yeah. quite yeah. awesome in the true sense of the word. Absolutely. And they tend to look over Foggy Bottom as though they're sort of mothering the six acres that I planted since. <laughs> Um, so that gives me as much gratification as anything. Mm. I think it was interesting you mentioned that plant because one of those, the bark on it is such a. I, I can remember as a child there was a massive one in a sort of woods, and I always sort of loved the, the texture and the feel of. It was an enormous great tree, but the softness of the bark and the colour, it was an incredible sort of conifer to see growing. Mm. No, it, it, it really is, and uh, if you've been lucky enough to go to see them in the wild, um, that that's uh, amazing. And uh, I've actually written a children's book, which is an e-book at the moment, but I'm trying to get it in in, in a, a hardcover edition. But uh, it, it's surrounding the history of the redwoods, and uh, I hope I hope that that will uh, uh, be. Uh, well, I don't think it'll be a bestseller, but I think it will be of interest to a lot of people because I give the history of the tree as well as sort of uh, telling a story. But, um, yeah, it's been um, something which uh, I've been lucky enough to be able to follow. And what I hope to do with Adrian's Wood area, uh, which is next door to Foggy Bottom, is to create um really interpretive garden because I've planted nearly all... North American varieties there, including these two redwoods, and I need storyboards to be set up uh, about some of them and how they were discovered and who by and when, um, and then what the Native Americans used them for. So um, I've sort of begun on that one. That will be my next book if I can find the time to do it. <laughs> in, a, in between you know, pruning all the shrubs and <laughs> all the other things. Yeah. That, that that's life. Uh, yeah. That yeah. Have, uh, yeah. So, so, Adrian, you, you, <laughs> so Adrian you, yeah, your new book is now available. Is there anything you'd like to enlighten us in your philosophy of the plants we grow today in our gardens and how perhaps garden design uh, as featured in, in, in Froggy Bottom. I suppose we've covered a little bit about that, but, I mean, is there a, sort of any key sort of inspiration you could pass on to our uh, Digit uh, listeners? Well, I think um, I think if you have a smaller garden and you have visitors, or sorry, you have uh, probably people listening to this who mm. uh, have a smaller garden, but some who have a reasonable-sized garden they can do something with. And I think uh, the point of uh, creating a, 
a view in a vista is important and you need focal points in the distance like hydrangea annabelle for instance mm -hmm. um that show up from a distance anything that is white and lasts a long time like that is and uh, we've got examples of it here but um and uh i think that um it's very difficult in a small garden to find the perfect tree and shrub and so on but i think you can <laughs> You know, where do you start? Uh, there's certain shrubs and things like that that you can prune and need to prune. Uh, initially, there's others that you might want to prune them up so that you can see through the trunk and so on. I've done that with certain conifers too. So it's, it's difficult to be specific, but I think that um, uh, less is more is often a, a good rule to mm. go by. Um, you know, but uh, people who get interested in plants, of course, want to try everything out, and, and that's that's okay too. You know, if you're interested in plants and follow them up, but most probably aren't. Would would like to see something in their garden that's going to give them enjoyment. Um, and I think the the understanding of a plant. You know, if you took a rose, for instance, or something fairly common. You know, probably these plants are not really looked at in detail. If you look at look at the flower um, on a summer's day and early in the morning, and you probably don't get up in time to see that it's uh, with moisture on or in the evening. Um, it's really a thing of beauty on its own. But um, so is um, Cornus midwinter fire. Say mm. in the winter time, you see how fiery that is in the winter, and the more sun it's in, the more extreme the color is and that sort of thing so some of those uh, elements hopefully are brought out in the book and mentioned in the book um, and um, I think and hope that people will be able to learn from that um, what I hope to do and down the road so to speak is we've got our own website which is foggybottomgarden.co.uk which um, I want to develop more with more in-depth stories about particular plants, but uh, take and send more photographs and so on, so that people can see beyond really what they normally see. Um, hopefully, we'll have time time to do all that. <laughs> but uh, of course, if I start in another book, you know, uh, doing all this is um, time is a factor. Yeah, indeed. Um, and, and Foggy Bottom, as far as um, climate change, I mean, obviously everybody's talking about horticulture and climate change and um, the whole global warming issues. Um, do you think that's going to have a, an effect on, on your garden at Bressingham over the, in the future, or are you already seeing well, evidence of that? I, I, yeah, I think, as a, uh, again, uh, I think we're all very much aware of what is happening elsewhere in the world. and Luckily, we have had uh, severe... Uh, temperatures and some pretty heavy rainfall, particularly in the south and the west, uh, where they have the rainfall. We haven't had so much here, but we have had dry weather, droughts, and so on. But um, you know, I I very much uh, believe that that is what is happening. I think there's no and no doubt about it that, that we're getting uh, um, more extremes and that's what probably we're going to get we don't know for sure it depends on the airstream and that sort of thing sure. i think the thing is that plants do and can adapt but they need need a hundred or 500 years or a thousand years to adapt and we're, none of us are going to be around for that long to see that um i don't think it means that we all suddenly have to rush out 
and buy new things, but it does mean that probably more tropical type of plants will become more available and more able to be used. It used to be, you know, when I first started in, in the business, it was all about how hardy a plant was, what, what winter it would come through. And um, that was the main question. Now it's not so much, although, of course, um, even if we don't get really cold winters, uh, the amount of wet that we get um, damaged a lot of things last year, I think. We had that very mild weather and then suddenly a frost. So it did as much damage as a hard winter would have done. Sure. So I think it's, we just keep an eye on the things. And uh, mm. I suspect, I don't know whether the garden centers or the plant or orientated places will tend to sort of offer something well i think i think it's a sales opportunity for summer of course to push something that uh, appears to be ideal against the climate or a new thing which might be worth trying but you never know um, because uh, east west south north mm. um type of soil you've got uh, microclimates and all sorts of things you know, it's very difficult to be judgmental across the board and say, well, that'll never grow because uh, there's always the exception to the rule. And uh, I think uh, we will have to be more careful what we choose. Uh, but I think it'll be over time. Yeah, no, I think very true. I think, I mean, the, obviously the, the HTA, the Horticultural Trades Association, I think is working quite diligently now looking at that and discussing with growers to give us a little bit of a pointer in the gardening trade a little bit to what what we should be perhaps stocking in the future but as you say early days and a lot a lot to be learnt in that, at that time um adrian as we're coming towards the end now um foggy bottom is is very much your garden it's your space so what's the secret of keeping it fresh colorful and ever inspiring to you and and the you know the, the tens of thousands of visitors to bressingham gardens each year well, I think um, I know that, of course, I've written about Foggy Bottom. Um, I've also taken a lot of photographs, of course, in my father's garden. We have a winter garden here. We have a summer garden, which we developed as well. Um, and uh, so there's there's a lot here for people to see. But Foggy Bottom itself, uh, I try to keep fresh because um, in, in many ways, there's new plantings going on the whole time. And... Mm. Uh, um, elevating certain areas and getting vistas through. So if people come on a regular basis, they will see changes, not only seasonal, but uh, from year to year. Uh, things uh, There's a lot that uh, I would like to get done, as I mentioned earlier, but uh, just enough, not enough time to do them all. We didn't get through this year, of course. This year was difficult. Uh, um, <laughs> every year is, I suppose, difficult with the weather in some respects. And if you have to spend a lot of time watering um, or if you get flooded and so on, then, uh, of course, it does uh, put you back a bit. But um, I think the thing is that um, is not to give up, but to keep finding ways to improve um, your opportunities, improve, you know, a challenge. If I, if I have a big conifer out, there's usually a benefit uh, to be got. Firstly, some blue, we had three blue spruce down, which were about 60 feet high or more uh, this winter. And, of course, you can't really notice where they had come from, um, except that it has opened up the view considerably to other things. And, uh, and you can now plant something in there because the roots spread far and wide and, and made it very dry. So now 
it's a different sort of place. So it's that sort of challenge, I think, um, and changing and sort of, uh, it was a challenge to start with to plant the garden up from an empty meadow. And it's a, even more of a challenge now to keep it looking interesting and changing with the time. And um, that's really, uh, I spend more and more time uh, doing that. Mm. Yeah, like Chris says, coming towards the end of the show now. So we have a couple of questions that we always like to ask our guests. So the, the first one being, if you were shipwrecked on a desert island, which plant or tool would you uh, wish for that you could enjoy on your life in the uh, desert island? Yeah, um, again, um, <laughs> I, I guess that one would have to sort of uh, consider um, a range of things. But I think, I think um, actually... I've been into buddleias a bit lately, and uh, uh, I'm trying to select uh, one or two forms. In fact, this year we've put one out called uh, Bressingham Bountiful, and it's got enormous flowers, and it's a really fairly vigorous plant, but it's got silver leaves too. So mm, I think that I would probably uh, work on buddleias because not only do they change very quickly and you raise them from seed, but you could do a lot of hybridization. And... Um, both to get large flowered ones and small ones, silver leaf, and that would keep me fairly busy, uh, <laughs> apart from the fact that it'd probably uh, cover the island in buddies in no time flat. <laughs> Excellent. That's great. And um, finally, Adrian, do, do you have any amusing stories, plant-related or garden-related, um, which you'd like to share with our, our listeners? Um <laughs> How long have they got? But, um, <laughs> well, there's, there's one really that I, I probably could recount, and uh, it's a bit ironic rather than anything else. But I had this idea of uh, we hadn't got a particularly new plant to show at Chelsea. And um, it so happened that um, in a New Zealand nursery we dealt with, they had this uh, this conifer, which was a Thuya orientalis orionana, now called platycladus. And I thought, well, this looked as though it was something. What What about doing something different? Fly it in from um, New Zealand to Gatwick, transfer it to another uh, either plane, uh, fly that or, or helicopter, land the helicopter just the other side of the Thames and take a, a boat up to the embankment and then run inside and put it in our exhibit. Um, mm -hmm. Well... There's always something to spoil things. Firstly, it, it, everything went right to start with, and except there was fog in London, nothing could take <laughs> off. So eventually the fog cleared, and we did get off in the helicopter, and we landed. We had a, 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 a film crew from ITV come on an old boat um, uh, coming up the river, and they were taking a shot of us going with this conifer and other plants until they're... they're um, their boat um, conked out. Then they had to get on our boat. Um, it wasn't a question of swimming in the Thames, but uh, on our boat, and they sort of followed us up uh, with this conifer late, of course, uh, to put it into the garden, which I got a space uh, cleared for. We put it in the garden, uh, and then, um, of course, uh, we expected it to be on ITV that evening, but I think a bomb went off. Um, in London, and uh, that was it. So we didn't get covered at all oh, in the news, and uh, the plant turned out to be almost identical with the one we'd already got. 
Oh no! <laughs> so, um, oh dear! Oh, you have a sense of irony. It was yeah. a learning curve. Yes, a learning curve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we had fun. We had fun at least. Yes, indeed. Um, it's been great to talk to you, Adrian. Do you, do you want to give us a, little, a bit of a shout out to how our readers can uh, get hold of a copy of your your new book? Yes. Okay. Well, they will get them from a few garden centres, and mm-hmm. I'll mention the Blue Diamond chain for one, and also British garden centres. Um, and uh, also, if they can't get a copy there, if they go to the website that I mentioned, which is foggybottomofgod.co.uk, they'll find out more about the book and be able to order it uh, directly from from that mail order, um, postage included. So um, uh, I hope that uh, people will benefit from, from getting a copy and... Um, you know, uh, we'll see what uh, what all this is about. Super, and yeah. did I notice on your website there's a thing at the moment where we can get a signed copy? Yes, uh, yes, I should have said a signed copy. <laughs> yeah, what you get is uh, if you get it from us, you get you get a signed copy. And uh, I had a book plate specially done from Bressingham, and also a numbered copy. So Ooh, um, proper that, collector's uh, item in, then. In, in, in core, due course, um, it might be worth a bit more money than something else. It might be worth less. Who knows? Depends on the <laughs> reputation of. Uh, I'm sure it will be. Whatever, but yeah, brilliant. Oh, it's different. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for yeah, your time thanks, today. Adrian. It's yes, been thanks. great talking to you. Absolutely and fascinating. Definitely inspired. I mean, like I said earlier, the website is. A, beautiful imagery and definitely inspired me to come over to yeah. Norfolk and have a look round. Well, I hope you will. Indeed. Th- thank you again, Adrian. Okay, all the best. Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening. At Chilton Music Therapy... We want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. From parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.